Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune Media. So here at Leadership Next, we believe that business, when it's at its best, can solve big problems. And today we're talking about a very big problem, COVID-19. The infectious disease has now killed thousands of people around the globe, and it's spreading rapidly. Can it be stopped? And can it be cured? My guest today is the smartest person I've found working on this question. His name is George Ankopoulos. He's been trying to solve science problems pretty much his entire life. He's co-founder and chief scientist of a company called Regeneron. And I should add, he has a pretty good track record at this stuff. He and his company found the cure, the treatment for Ebola. So, George, tell us about what's going on at Regeneron right now to address coronavirus. Well, I guess let's start by just saying there's three general approaches that are being tried to come up with some sort of treatment for coronavirus. The first approach that obviously was started in China when they were so desperate and they had nothing for this horrific crisis situation, and they were just trying everything off the shelf, anything that might have worked against AIDS or that might have worked against hepatitis or flu viruses or even existing drugs. Basically existing drugs. Existing drugs. drugs. Yeah. Okay. So that's one big category. And it's usually those things don't work out to save you. But I'll get back to that in a second. Because there's a really exciting development there that we're involved with. But it all started in China. Cool. The last approach that one takes is vaccines. Okay. But as you may have heard from Tony Fauci, the head of NIH, NIAID, that those tend to take, I mean, they are the final answer. We need those. And there's a lot of companies from the biggest, like our partners at Sanofi to Pfizer, J&J, to small high-tech companies like Moderna and BioNTech. They're trying to come with vaccines. But those, according to Fauci and others, those will take at least a year or two to get there. So we need something in the shorter term intermediate that's targeted. And that's where we come in. Yeah, I want to. I really am excited about talking about that. But before we do that, let's let's just stick with vaccines for a minute. The reason vaccines take so long is because basically you're going to inoculate everybody, and you better be damn sure it's safe before you do that. Right? It's a testing process. Yeah, it really is. You're right. It's a testing process because if you're going to be inoculating a lot of people, even if something might work in one or even a hundred people, you want to have a lot more comfort about the benefit risk, because God forbid, if you cause something horrific in one in a hundred or one in a thousand people, then it's probably not worth the risk. So that's why there's so much intensive testing that needs to be done. Okay. So one is you try existing drugs and therapies. Two is you search for a vaccine, but that takes a long time. And three is what you're working on. Tell us about that. Well, we're actually working remarkably. We have something that's here and now that's already in clinical trials that we started this week. I'll get back to that. But the third approach is essentially to provide what a vaccine does. A vaccine generates an immune response in the human being that literally is an antibody that binds and neutralizes and destroys the virus. So we have developed an approach where we don't need to wait for a vaccine to do that. We've actually created these very special mice. We call them the Velocimmune Humab mice. They are genetically humanized, so they have a human immune system. We actually 
vaccinate them essentially. And we get very good immune response since we have so many of these mice, we can really boost them and we can optimize and get a perfect immune response out of it, but it's totally human and we can clone it out. And so we're getting essentially the best possible response you could get if you vaccinated a human, but we can take out the specific neutralizing antibodies, pure, highly pure, clone them out, highly purify them, and now give them back uh, to humans. This is exactly what so, we did for Ebola. <laughs> this is what you did for Ebola. So there's so many things you just said there that I didn't understand. So I, I'm going to take you back and get you to uh, uh, walk through it a little bit. First of all, the mouse. What do you mean by a very special mouse? So for over 100 years, we know that when you challenge animals or human beings with a pathogen, the human beings and the animals, they can neutralize it. And actually, over 100 years ago, scientists had realized this, and they would actually challenge horses with diphtheria, and they would harvest the serum from the horses, and they would inject it into humans to cure diphtheria, and it actually worked. The only problem was horses are very foreign, and sometimes people got what they called horse serum sickness and died. But unbelievably, people were doing this over 100 years ago. And what was in that serum? Antibodies against the pathogen, either against huh. the bacteria or the virus. Huh. So we humans, we were doing this sort of thing 100 years ago, but we we're using crude, unpurified forms of animal antibodies yeah. to do it. And in fact, we then progressed to trying to get serum out of human survivors to do this, and that also works, but it's not a highly purified, highly concentrated form. So the big advance that we had, and I can't believe this, but it's something that I actually thought about as a graduate student back in 1985, <laughs> why? Because we can genetically engineer mice, that means we can change the genes of mice. We can actually put the genes for the human immune system into a mouse, and that mouse will now actually be able to make human antibodies. So we can do exactly what they were doing a hundred years ago with horses, but now we're immunizing mice, getting mice to survive and to have generated an immune response, but we can now clone that out of that mouse and grow it up in big bioreactors. But the beauty of it, because the genes that gave rise to this immune response are fully human, the cure that we've purified is fully human. Wow. And it's essentially what a vaccine tries to do but it's now a highly purified, highly potent form of it. And because it's so well characterized, historically, it tends to be a lot safer than trying to use the vaccine approach. And it tends not to have the sort of problems that you might elicit unexpectedly with a complex vaccine approach, because you're literally giving the exact thing that you're trying to get from a vaccine. Wow. So the advantages are we can do it a lot faster and we've just announced that we have thousands of these antibodies wow. and we plan to be in human testing in June, which is an incredible record. I mean, we set the record when we did this for Ebola. It went from it was nine months going from starting to being in human patients. And eventually it was shown in a study by the World Health Organization to be very effective at literally curing people who had even advanced forms of the disease. But now we're, we're breaking that record here. So now we're going in less than six months, we'll be in human patients. And we hope that this could be both protective, what they call a prophylactic vaccine, because we can give it to the high-risk people, healthcare workers, other critical care workers, people at the most risk, like children with cystic fibrosis or asthma, or these elderly people who are really suffering from this disease. 
we could protect them. So, George, what's the difference between a prophylactic treatment and a vaccine that you give widely? So the basic difference is a vaccine, you're giving essentially something that's equivalent to a dead virus or a small part of the virus. You're asking the body to respond to it. And everybody responds differently. And some people will be protected, some will not. And some might actually have a dangerous reaction to it. But you're counting on the body's own response. Here, we have created the perfect human response in a mouse. We've been able to purify it and concentrate it so that it's almost guaranteed to work and it is likely not to have the sort of potential side effects you might get from a vaccine. And you can directly inject it into people. So it's the end result of the vaccine. The, the problem why a vaccine ultimately would be a great advance as well is that this will only last as long as the injection lasts in your body. So for about, let's say, a month or two. And then you'll have to get injected again. The beauty of an active vaccine, this is what's called a passive vaccine, because you have created what you want the vaccine to actually do, but you, you're, the body isn't doing it, so it doesn't last forever because the body's not continuously making it. An active uh, vaccine, the body continuously makes a solution and you could be protected for years or even for life. Well, just to make sure I understand this, so a vaccine teaches the body to create antibodies. This is actually injecting the antibodies directly into your system. I couldn't have said it better. That's actually perfect okay. articulation. I, I, I'm starting to catch on. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, this new wave of business technology, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, the ability to make intelligence out of data is creating huge opportunities for companies. But a lot of the CEOs I talk to feel daunted by it. It's like, where do they get the imagination to rethink their entire corporation? How do they deal with that? The opportunities are immense, particularly when you look at not just any one of these technologies individually, but the convergence of all of them collectively, creating the opportunity to truly transform business models. And I know it can seem daunting, but the reality is taking a first step in actually produces huge benefit because what we're finding is that many of the cutting edge applications are not coming out of the corporate headquarters. They're coming out of putting the technology in the hands of our people on the front lines. They find new and innovative uses. We then funnel them back up and leverage them across the entire client base. Yeah, it really gets to the importance of a culture of innovation at the company. It is essential that our people feel empowered to take the latest and greatest and to find new and innovative ways to use it for productive purposes. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. So, George, the question, though, the critical question in all of these things is scale. I mean, we may have a situation where millions or even hundreds of millions of people are infected with this disease. How does this scale? Well, there are limitations to this. I mean, we will be producing by the summer hundreds of thousands of doses per month, and we can probably increase that by about tenfold. And we could also engage other companies to join in and, and help on this effort because it is such a crisis, like you said. 
But I think that this solution will probably be catered towards the, the most critical individuals who are at the front line, healthcare workers, other critical care workers, you know, the people at highest risk, kids with asthma, kids with, with uh, cystic fibrosis or the elderly and so forth. But in, in parallel, obviously, there's other potential near-term approaches. And that's what I was referring to at the top. Yeah. People are so desperate, they were trying everything. Yeah. Along those lines, there are some promising treatments now coming, starting once again, reports from Asia, because that's obviously where they've been dealing with this the longest, about some things that might be effective in earlier stage patients, things like chloroquine, which is a malaria drug and so forth. But the thing that's coming out of China about the most severe patients, a lot of people will get this disease and they'll either be asymptomatic or they'll have a very mild disease. A few percent of the people are going to have respiratory distress. They will have problems breathing and they'll need to go to the hospital to help their breathing. Those are called the severe patients. It'll yeah. only be a few percent. Okay. But those are the ones, the those are the ones who are dying. Those are the ones. So of the severe people who walk into the hospital and have to be hospitalized, about a quarter to a third of them progress to needing ventilators, which is a tragedy because we're actually, you know, we're in contact with Italy where they're dealing with this right now. They don't have enough ventilators to deal with the influx. Of, of people who are coming in and they have to make the, the worst decision the doctor never wants to make about who's going to that respirator and who's not. Yeah. Um, these are life and death decisions. But the people, if you go on a respirator right now, because there are no treatments, up to half of those people are not making it. They're dying. So having a treatment for the severe, that is the people before the ventilator, but who are hospitalized or the critical, the ones who are actually on the ventilators, having treatments that might work there could really be a game changer. It could really save all those lives. And it could also take the burden off the healthcare system that can't deal with so many people needing ICUs and ventilators. And that's where the excitement came a few weeks ago because in you know, anecdotes with small numbers of patients, China was describing that somebody had a clever idea of thinking that in addition to fighting the virus, maybe the reason so many people are having lung problems is because the virus itself is not the problem, but it's inciting almost an auto-inflammatory response by the body that overattacks the lungs and causes the huh. problem. So they decided to test a bunch of things, but one in particular, one blocker of an inflammatory agent, which was approved. It was, it was a drug that was actually developed by a Japanese company known as Shugai, and it was eventually taken over by Roche. But they were trying it there, and it was blocking a certain inflammatory factor that the body sometimes uh, – it's a natural protein in the body, but it can be in too, many, too much quantity. It can actually cause inflammation. And so uh, this was used for rheumatoid arthritis primarily, inflammation of the joints. And so basically they tried this as an anti-inflammatory agent for the lung here, and they reported anecdotally amazing results. And, wow. and this is where we come in. Because there's only one other drug that's like this Shugai drug, which is actually our drug. It blocks the specific inflammatory factor known as interleukin-6 or the interleukin-6 receptor. And ours is also likewise approved in rheumatoid arthritis. It is very similar. Uh, we like to think ours might have some advantages. But anyway, doctors started using both of these drugs, what they call off-label. And there's anecdotal reports from both drugs that are looking very, very promising. But, you know, the FDA, and I think rightfully so, is not satisfied with these sort of anecdotal stories. 
they need and they want well-controlled studies to prove if something really is effective and exactly how effective it is so they can recommend how it could be used. So people don't just start prescribing it off-label to thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of people because you don't know what harm you could do if you don't have the study. Yeah, but George, this is the most encouraging conversation I've had in in uh, quite a while. I mean, what you're saying is we're making progress on three fronts. Some people out there are working on the vaccine that a, a year, year and a half from now could inoculate the population. You guys, by June, could have uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of treatments for frontline and at-risk workers that is prophylactic. And then these drugs could be used to uh, save the lives of the most severe patients. Exactly right. And in fact, we've, you know, we've partnered with the FDA and with BARDA. And actually, the governor of New York State was so engaged and his health commissioner, Howard Zucker, we all got together, including all the great medical institutions, not only in New York, but across the country. And in record time, because, because of the actions and the commitments of everybody, the FDA felt we had to study uh, these classes of drugs. So just this week, just on Monday, we initiated the first controlled clinical trial of this treatment. Ours is called Ceruliumab or Kevzara in severe and critical COVID-19 patients, both in New York City institutions, but also across the country. And this could be near-term opportunity to really change the course of these severe patients. We hope that that's really works out. Yeah. And we also, in June, as you said, we'll be putting the antiviral antibody. So this is attacking an inflammatory process that may be causing or contributing to the severe respiratory distress. Hopefully, by the time we put the antivirals, we'll know and we'll hopefully have proven that this actually can impact these late-stage patients. And together, these might be a great one-two punch. So we really feel like we're in a really privileged position that it's our technologies that we've invested in for decades together with our people working overtime on this that puts us in a position to maybe provide this great one-two punch. Maybe these two together could even result in even better outcomes, let's say, for the severe and late-stage patients, while our antivirals could prevent people from being infected while we're waiting, while we're waiting for great other companies from the Pfizer's to the Sanofi's and the J&J's to develop the vaccines that eventually we'll all need. What you're, uh, the folks at Regeneron must be very excited about this. Are they mostly with you? You're based in Boston, right? Tarrytown, Tarrytown, New Tarrytown. York. Oh, I'm sorry. You're close We're, to me. You're yeah, close we to represent me. Stupid. The great state of, we represent <laughs> the great state of New York and biotech is alive and well here. Well, you, do you got mice running all around the place? I mean, you're talking about a hundred thousand, potentially a million doses of this stuff. That must take a lot of mice. Well, we, we actually clone them out of the mice I see. very rapidly and then we put them into huge bioreactors. We actually have a large facility up near Albany in Rensselaer, one of the most largest and most sophisticated biologics manufacturing facilities on the planet. And so that's where we are making the large scale amounts that we will need to treat hundreds of thousands, if not more patients. And you said hundreds of thousands, maybe 10 times that. Does the 10 times that require you to make big investments in new facilities? Well, obviously there's not time for new facilities. Yeah. As you probably know, by the end of this year, we will have 10 approved drugs that impact people, everything from saving their vision to curing or treating their asthma, allergy, atopic dermatitis, cancers, all sorts of diseases. We, we don't and we can't stop providing those patients with those drugs. 
So it's a matter of seeing if we can reconfigure our manufacturing capabilities and capacities and making a choice of what we produce or don't produce. And also, it's also a matter of, you know, looking to see. I think that uh, we've already talked. There's a lot of willing and able people who have excess manufacturing capacity who might join in and say, okay, you guys have a good solution here. Let's join you and let's help scale it up even further so we can provide it to more people. Uh, your stock has been climbing while everybody else's stock has been falling. Uh, you know, by and, the way, yeah. we, don't, we don't watch the stock because we, we pay attention on really you know, delivering important medicines to people. And we figure all of that will take care of itself. Remarkably enough, we are not you know, a commercially driven company that pays attention to those things. Well, and wait, you have, to, you have to make money, don't you? Well, it turns out that if you deliver important new drugs to people, the money really Comes. takes care of itself. We're not only recently, I think during the last decade, we were one of the top performing stocks in the S&P 500. And since then, and obviously, as you're saying, in this crisis, we're one of the best, if not the best performing stock. But we focus first on the patient, delivering important medicines. Everything else takes care of itself for us. That's been our history. And that's what we're going to continue to do. I honestly have no idea what my stock price is right now. I'm focused on, you know, dealing with all of the people in the labs and how that progress is going, dealing with all of our clinical people in the field who are trying to turn the discoveries from the labs to, to making a difference in patients, planning for the next set of trials. This is, you know, it's top of our mind. And the last thing we're worrying about is the stock price. Good, uh, good, uh, good for you, George. Hey, I, I did want to ask you, the Trump administration says, it has uh, slashed red tape to develop therapies as fast as they can possibly done. Is that having an effect on you? What, what I can say is that, you know, our interactions with the FDA, with BARDA, who've been partners with us on all this, we've had great, in the state of New York, everybody's joining in. I think, every, I, I think that I'm proud of us. We are pulling together in a time of crisis. Everybody's stepping up. We're coming together. We're all trying to do the right thing. I see so many dedicated people. I can pick up the phone and call, you know, my counterpart, the head of R&D at Pfizer, Michael Dolston. And the first thing he's saying is, what, what can we do together to help to make a difference? You can pick up the phone and talk to anybody in the industry. You can pick up and talk to people in academia, the medical institutions. Yeah. I am proud. I'm proud to be a scientist and part of the medical profession and part of the industry. And I think we're all coming together here. And, and I think this is a chance for humanity to show that, hey, we can fight back against the real enemy. Because the real enemy is, is not what all the politicians are usually arguing about. It's the existential threats to humanity, which are disease, and in this case, a particular epidemic, but more broadly disease, and it's the environment, it's climate change, and we all got to band together to understand that we are not the enemy. We got to band together to fight the existential threats against us. You just made a super important point, and look, the, the pharmaceutical industry has really gotten pounded in terms of public opinion over the course of the last decade because of, of what's perceived as price gouging, et cetera. You're advocating a very different approach that really focuses on the, focuses on the patient and the therapy first. I, I really believe that with all, you know, focus on drug pricing and focus on healthcare for all and all that, we lost the focus on who the real enemy is. The real enemy is disease. There's just too much disease and no society, the amount of burden that is increasing, no society will be able to afford, you know, taking care of all that disease. What we need is we need new innovation to come up with effective treatments for the fact that half of the U.S. population is obese. Half of them will get type 2 diabetes. 
which means they'll be suffering and needing surgeries for amputations, for kidneys, for loss of vision. You know, we haven't touched most forms of cancer. Alzheimer's disease is coming upon us. And then all we need is a little epidemic. And it just shows and, 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 and dramatizes how, how much on the brink we always are. We got to recognize that's the problem. And the only solution, you know, the only solution, like I say, we're bacteria in Erlenmeyer flask. Okay, we're no different. We're dying, you know, from disease and we're dying from the pollution that we're creating. And these are existential threats. And the only thing that distinguishes us from those bacteria are our God-given brains and our abilities to think our way out of that Erlenmeyer flask. Yeah. And that's what we should be focused on. New innovation. And this is what policymakers, they should focus on. We need to encourage the brightest minds to devote their greatest efforts to innovate and invent the solutions to the existential threats facing humanity. And that's, and we're all together yeah. on that. We're one species. We're fighting for our very survival. Everything else is rhetoric. Everything else is petty. Innovation has saved us before. And that's what we got to focus on again. And that's what I'm proud of Regeneron. We spent 30 years innovating and inventing the weapons to fight disease of all types. And we're in a position now to be using those weapons against this epidemic. But to me, it's just a small reflection on the whole industry and what we've all been trying to do. And also the academics and those at the NIH, we're all in this together. Let's focus on working together, innovate, not only here, but against all disease, not only against the disease challenges, but other threats to humanity like climate change. Alan, I got to leave you. Yeah, George, uh, you're one very impressive and passionate mass of bacteria. Uh, go back to it. Thanks so much for taking some time for all us. All right. Thank you so much. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced and edited by the amazing Dan Sacker. It's engineered and mixed by the Wizards, Wayne Schulmeister and Debbie Daughtry. And it's written by me, Alan Murray, and by Dan Sacker. Our music is by Jason Snell. Executive producers, Mason Cohen and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is recorded at Fortune Media headquarters in downtown Manhattan. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 